Businesses thrive by knowing customer insights because today's insights are tomorrow's facts. At iResearch, we live and breathe insights. And despite searching high and low, we were unable to find a customer insights podcast that answers one of the most important questions in business. Why do customers do what they do? So we launched one. Hi, I'm your host, Darshan Mehta. Today, I'd like to welcome a special guest, Laura Bevan Yates. She is the Senior Vice President of Customer Success at Immersion. It's a neuroscience software platform that measures people's unconscious neurological connection to an experience or piece of content as it is happening via their smartwatch. Welcome. How are you today, Laura? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me, Darshan. It's great to have you. Tell me about your journey and pivotal moments that have brought you to the world of neuroscience and neuro insights. It's been quite a journey, uh, to be honest. So I actually got my PhD in cognitive psychology, and I first started working with neuroscience when I was in graduate school. So I got my PhD under the advisement of Dr. Paul Zak, who runs the Center for Neuroeconomic Studies. Um, in the name, of course, of the lab, very much uh, neuroscience is involved. And so in grad school, I got the opportunity to work with technology like um, electroencephalograms, which are caps with electrodes that sit on the outside of your head. Um, I worked with fMRI. But what's really interesting is a lot of people don't really understand that neuroscience goes beyond simply measuring signals directly from the brain. And so also, um, neuroscience includes technology like looking at heart rate to understand what's happening in the brain or skin conductance or facial coding. So, um, you know, I really got my first exposure in graduate school and then I actually got the opportunity to work on the neuroscience and emotion team at a market research firm called Ipsos. So, um, you know, I, I got it's, it's been, again, kind of quite a journey because I started in grad school and then had the pleasure of being able to um, be on a team where we were responsible for locating and vetting neuroscience vendors that were using their technology for market research purposes. And then from there, you know, it's been a journey to hear as well, but I think we'll kind of get into that. So I'll <laughs> maybe save that. <laughs> Have there been some pivotal moments that got you to dive deeper into neuroscience and also... Tell us a little bit about neuroscience and how is it different than other research and what's its really main objective? Yeah. So, you know, the I would say, you know, again, pivotal moments for me were really when I was in grad school, actually, when I went out for grad school, I was planning on studying memory and aging. And I started actually my master's with that focus in mind, but we were doing a lot of behavioral studies and I really felt like I was missing the tangibility of it all. So it all felt very theoretical. And um, I actually ended up in the Center for Neuroeconomic Studies because I heard uh, Dr. Paul Zach speaking about the fact that they were doing blood draws to understand what was happening in the brain looking at hormone change. And so that made me realize, you know, you can really understand what's going on from a brain perspective by getting these tangible moments, these things that are really observable, and then build theory from there or support or debunk theory. Um, when I was working at Ipsos, it was really interesting because we worked with a lot of different technologies, but one of the big challenges that I saw when we were working with customers was finding or understanding that insights from neuroscience technology or neuroscience studies, a lot of clients had a hard time understanding 
how that actually related to future behavior and whether or not it related to future behavior. And that was really a consistent challenge that I, I felt and faced because the clients would say, hey, if more people are smiling during the sad or sad during the sad, does that mean that it's going to have some kind of impact on whether or not those individuals choose to purchase or visit our website? And the work just hadn't been done at that point. So when it comes to neuroscience versus more traditional methodologies, the the concept is to really start at the brain. And one of the challenges with traditional methodologies, like, uh, you know, asking people questions via a survey or, you know, traditional quantitative, traditional qualitative, those have a ton of value. I've worked in traditional market research. I've worked with surveys and with focus groups. And again, those bring a lot of value. But one of the challenges with asking people how they feel about something is that it's difficult inherently as a human to report how we're really feeling, especially if we're asked how we feel about something that happened in the past. If you ask me uh, how I felt while I was watching Boba Fett last week, that's a challenge for me because that was a week ago. It's very difficult to report how I truly felt in the moment having that experience. And so many neuroscience methodologies, at least as they apply to research in more, uh, you know, in the industry, those neuroscience methodologies are really aiming to measure people's unconscious reactions to an experience, to content, and to do it in the moment that people are having them, as opposed to asking after the fact, um, how did you feel or what do you plan to do in the future? It's really trying to understand from a brain perspective, because the brain is doing tons of things that we're not aware of. It's coding things as important or unimportant. It's choosing where to um, attend our attentional, re- or, you know, put our attentional resources. And so it's it's just really a challenge. And again, neuroscience is, is the goal of that in research is to sense the unsaid, get below the surface, understand those reactions that aren't so easy for us to all vocalize as humans. So I'm curious, how do you actually distinguish whether it's a conscious or subconscious uh, measurement that you're getting? That's a really good question. So typically in research, um, people who are doing kind of neuroscience-based research would view a conscious response as something that we are asked and something that is happening that requires reflection. So if I'm aware of my situation or I'm asked to, um, let's imagine dial testing is a methodology that is used often for understanding um, reactions to content in real time. So when you ask somebody in a dial testing scenario, how are you feeling at the time? What it requires is that they take a moment to think about their feelings, to be aware of their feelings, and then to report those by turning a dial, for example, up or down to indicate how they're feeling. One of the challenges of that is that when you ask somebody to become consciously aware of their feelings, they start putting mental effort toward that and less mental effort on actually consuming the experience. So a lot of what we do every day when we go out and, uh, you know, shop at the grocery or we go to Target or we watch television content or listen to music, a lot of the things that we are doing are happening below our actual awareness. It's not as though we're constantly assessing those situations and those are coming top of mind and kind of front and center. A lot of what we do and how we interact with the world occurs below our actual awareness, if that makes sense. So are you tapping into emotions? Is that what you're really doing? So that's also a great question. So ultimately, what we are looking at at Immersion is we are looking at the extent to which the brain 
is connecting with an experience. And we define that as emotional resonance. But Darshan, ultimately, the way that the brain operates in the world is that it's constantly choosing where to allocate these very costly attentional resources. So it actually costs a lot for our brain to say, I'm going to focus on this thing. I'm going to intentionally try to attend to that. From a brain perspective, if I put my uh, my costly attentional resources toward an experience or content, and I'm not getting value from that, and that value can come from a number of things. It can be the brain saying, hey, this seems really interesting. I'm going to tag this as important for storing for later. Hey, this reminds me of a time when. I'm going to tag that and store that as important for later. It's really interesting because we don't define things that we're measuring. We do talk about emotional resonance, but ultimately emotions are a subjective thing that we are assigning to our experiences later. So from the brain perspective, it's more about getting value. Am I getting something important and meaningful from this situation? And if so, I'm going to store that. I'm going to flag it as something that I want to be able to revisit later. Like when I'm out at the grocery and shopping for new shampoo, and I see the bottle on the shelf, for example. It's not really about me feeling happy or sad when I see that. It's about, do I see an ad that actually captivates me in a meaningful way? that resonates. And if so, I'm actually more likely to go and see that product and have that product jump out at me when I'm on, uh, when I'm out shopping, if that makes sense. So it's really about that brain getting value and coding something as important. And so how are you doing this with watches, uh, smart watches? So, you know, we started, uh, you know, I kind of mentioned uh, when I was in grad school, we were actually looking at hormone levels and we were doing it with blood draws. And we actually identified, we were one of the first labs that identified that when people have an experience that moves them to a point that is meaningful and significant, they actually release two chemicals in the brain. One is dopamine and dopamine is that important element for attention. The second is oxytocin. And oxytocin is that hormone that actually keeps us focused on the scenario. It's that hormone that's released when we're getting value from the experience. When we identified this, we found actually that when somebody's having that meaningful moment, those two hormones release. But then also, if people release those hormones, they're more likely to actually donate some of their hard-earned money toward an organization that produced that video. So this was our kind of seminal study, and we got a lot of press because we found these hormones and found basically that with the release of those, we can predict whether or not someone is likely to do something. Fast forward about uh, you know three or four years, we got a little bit of attention from the U.S. government who said, wow, you were able to find this kind of physiologic marker that indicates that people are likely to make some decision. We want to be able to do this at scale, where if we drop a flyer on a battlefield, we want to be able to understand, are people actually going to put the, you know, the, their weapons down? How do we know without needing to poke people with needles? Obviously, that's not uh, something that's scalable. So we and other labs were challenged to find a way to understand that this hormone release was happening, but to do so again in a way that's scalable. And they said there are two criteria. Number one, we need to be able to do this at scale. But number two, we also need to make sure that you're vetted by third-party labs. So this is very academic. You know, when academics do research, it's not enough to just say, hey, I found this thing. You also aim to have that evaluated by your peers, to be peer-reviewed, to be published. So we went to work and we actually put about 12 years of research into this challenge. And it was kind of a backwards challenge because we knew that oxytocin release told us people are likely to engage in some future behavior. Then we had to actually find out what are other physiologic signals 
that are strong predictors that the brain has released this hormone, right? So we started testing every technology we could get our hands on. We looked at the EEGs. We looked at breath analysis. We looked at lasers to see if we could understand this release from lasers. And after 12 years of research, what we found is that the number one predictor of oxytocin release and of this future behavior, these future actions, which from a neuroeconomics lab, that's what we cared most about. The one predictor was actually variation in your cardiac rhythm. So it's about the way in which your heart rate changes over time. So that for us became the kind of pivotal moment where we said, hey, okay, we don't need to stick people with needles anymore. We can actually look at the way that the heart rate is changing subtly. And it actually turns out that's not super surprising because you actually have the largest concentration of oxytocin receptors in your vagus nerve, which innervates the heart. So when we were uh, you know, working with the US government, we were able to identify this. At the time though, Darshan, we were doing hand calculations on uh, extracting the meaningful information from the heart rate signals. Uh, it was you know, tons of work, tons of kind of manual labor. I always joke about my grad school time being blood, sweat, and tears because I was the expert in skin conductance, which ended up not really being a meaningful additional predictive element. But um, what we found again was, was that cardiac rhythm really mattered. And we found that at first we were measuring it with medical grade uh, technology. And then with some research, we found we can actually use lightweight fitness sensors to track this just as accurately. And now fast forward to where we're at, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were using primarily fitness sensors and we realized there's a big need for researchers to be able to continue doing research. They needed an agile solution where they could meet people at home and people didn't want us sending sensors into their home. So we went to work and basically found that we could tap into smartwatches we have algorithms specific for those. And now we can actually tap into devices that people already own. Again, a smartwatch like an Apple Watch or a Google Watch that consumers are already wearing, which is a benefit because that means when we're measuring their reactions, those second-by-second -second changes in their cardiac rhythm, we're doing so passively where they can actually naturally have the experience. Interesting. So what it sounds like, there's been a, a game changer now because traditionally this type of work was done in a controlled environment in a lab or somewhere where you stuck a lot of probes and things and people and it was, it was not a natural setting but i think what i'm hearing now is you actually with these wearable devices are going out in the field and how much of this is real time now Absolutely. You know, for us, that's what matters is meeting consumers where they are. So we can measure people when they're sitting at home on their couch. We can measure people when they're out shopping at Target. We can measure people when they're in line at Disneyland. For us, one of the other challenges that I faced really when I was in my previous role working in kind of neuromarketing was a lot of the technology just didn't allow you to measure people where they are naturally. Again, as you mentioned, it required coming into a lab having to control, uh, you know, outside variables. EEG is inherently noisy because it can pick up signals from other kinds of technology around it. And a lot of the, the technology that's been developed now that's lighter weight that allows people to move around more, it's, it's very prone to noise. And so for us, again, it's really important to be able to get to people where they are. But because we have the second by second measure, you can actually see that data. Let's see that, uh, let's say that you're out uh, doing a shop along with someone, you can see their data 
in real time. You can see when they're having these moments of high connection in the environment they're in versus points where their brain is all over the place because they're confused because there's no pricing on the, the shelving, for example. So we're near real time at this point. And, you know, that's one of the exciting things because that means you can adapt in real time. So how do you connect what you're measuring on their watch to what they're seeing and doing at the time? That's also a great question. So we have kind of two paths that we categorize our types of research or the types of research our clients are doing. Um, So one is what we call kind of content-based measurement. And so in those cases, that might be, you know, I have uh, a new advertising uh, advertisement campaign that I'm going to put out, or I have a new movie trailer, or I have a new show that's going to be, that I'm hoping will air this fall. And in those cases, it's really simple because people can just link in the video, they can send it out and people, it's almost like a quantitative style assessment where people can watch the content again on their couch and just have their smartwatch tracking their reactions passively in real time. In other cases, when people are out in the field, it really depends. So some, in some cases, people take notes through our platform to add that additional context. In other cases, people will capture video and they'll pair the video to the measure so that they understand what parts of that experience are really driving those high moments and low moments. Other cases, people just capture audio. Um, so it really depends on the, the particular environment, but we have a lot of different ways now to kind of capture that additional context. And it's really been beneficial because the entire research world has moved to agile research, right? And so there's more and more ability to really capture that context out in the wild. And how much of a challenge is it to recruit people due to, you know, privacy, health concerns, all all that uh, stuff? Yeah, that's also a fantastic question, Darshan. You know, it's, especially in this day and age, um, Privacy is hugely important and it's hugely important to us as well. So the way that we operate is that um, any individuals who are participating in any research that involves immersion are doing so in a fully opt-in manner. So they choose to download an app onto their phone. Many of our clients are incentivizing their uh, you know, consumers to participate in research, either via Um, you know, traditional methods where they're recruiting using panel companies or in other cases, they may be reaching out to their own consumers and offering incentives that relate to their products or to uh, the, you know, the, the, the space that they're in. When it comes to actually, though, participating, individuals download an app that sits on their uh, smartphone, and then they pair their smartwatch to the phone. Everything that we are collecting is anonymous. So actually, when you see data on our platform, it is masked by an anonymous code that our system spins up. The other thing is that while we're collecting these second-by-second measures of cardiac rhythm change, that data goes up to our cloud and is actually processed in real time. So I mentioned earlier that a lot of the calculations that we were doing when I was in grad school were hand calculations. Luckily, we've moved past that and we have automated algorithms to go through and process that data second by second so that what we output on our platform is our measure of immersion, which ranges from one to 100 with a higher number being better. And we do all the work to actually surface the insights so that the end consumers understand their data is anonymized. They get their own feedback, so they get to see their own data on their um, through our app. 
But ultimately, everything is opt-in. We're never measuring them when they are not aware. They actually actively start data collection on their smartwatch at the time of the experience. So again, we, we've done a lot from our end to make sure that consumers understand that this is fully opt-in, that they their privacy is very important to us, and that their anonymity is fully protected. So tell me, how does uh, Neuro Insights differ from Insights? And can you give me an example of where you had some Neuro Insights that you couldn't have gotten any other way? Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting because one of the, for me, the, the biggest, the, the benefit of Neuro-based Insights is that you have the capacity, again, to measure people passively. You don't need to take them out of a scenario or ask them after the fact. You can measure in real time passively. And the benefit of that is that you get more unbiased answers. You get more unbiased information on how that experience happened and how the encoding happened at the time of encoding. By doing that, so we, again, you know, I mentioned earlier, I came from a neuroeconomics lab. For us, neuroeconomics, the economics part means that we care about behavior. We're not in it to just say you should measure immersion because immersion matters. We are very much of, uh, you know, my advisor always said, Paul, he always said, "Put you're going to put your money where your mouth is. So we care about outcomes. And so when we built our algorithms, they were fully to predict the likelihood that individuals are having a brain experience that is going to lead to them remembering information, lead to them action, uh, doing some action later. We've also demonstrated this in the work that we've done with our clients. So we've actually created models to demonstrate that when you have higher immersion, it actually yields a higher likelihood of engaging in some behavior later. So for us, the important part is that we're measuring something that is likely to lead to changes in market behavior or consumer behavior. In other neuroscience solutions, the goal is also to get people where they are to get those real-time reactions that are unbiased. Because Darshan, if you ask me, you know, uh, if you email me tomorrow and you say, how was that conversation that we had? I want to please you. So of course, now I think it's fantastic. So I'm, I'm, you know, giving you my honest answer. But when you're in a scenario where People are asking you about your opinions about things or asking you what you intend to do. If you ask me what I intend to have for dinner later, I can come up with a quick answer, but until I'm there, it's very difficult to actually know that. So what neuroscience really aims to do is to identify things that are going to relate to future behavior or are more likely to be unbiased answers that will basically yield better outcomes for businesses. That's the entire goal or the want of every kind of neuroscience technologist that I've spoken to is they want to really provide clients with, with more accurate answers that will actually allow them to, and, and you need the supplement of the quantitative and the qualitative because it gives life to the neuroscience data, but it's a complement that really helps you again, get below the surface, if that makes sense. How accurate is this approach? So, you know, it really depends on the technology, ultimately. Again, we've worked really hard to hone in on our accuracy and not only our accuracy, but our validity of being able to relate to behavior. That for us matters a lot. When I worked at uh, my, in my former role, every technology that we vetted had done the work to evaluate their accuracy. And I think ultimately when it comes to accuracy, it depends on what the, the tech is claiming to answer. And so a lot of technology will claim to really understand 
emotions. For example, you know, some of these lighter weight EEG um, devices, the goal is to measure approach and avoidance. They talk about measuring emotion, but our emotional centers of the brain are very deep. And therefore, it can be very difficult to actually capture emotional responses using electrodes that are outside the skull because you don't really know how to isolate where those reactions or that electrical activity came from. So really when it comes down to it with different technologies, it depends on the technology. Um, I think everyone who's in the field really works hard to get that level of accuracy, but I think what's becoming more and more important for brands and companies who want to utilize neuroscience technology is that they want to know that it's actually going to relate to something meaningful and that it's going to produce results that they can action. That makes sense. You recently worked on a project involving electric vehicles, correct? Um, what was the project and, and, and using this approach, uh, what did you uncover? So this is one of my favorite projects that we worked on because it was in conjunction with a company called eSource, which is an insights company. And, you know, eSource is doing incredible things because, you know, obviously our... Uh, we're, we're in a place where we need to all as humans focus more on our behaviors and how they impact the environment. And the government has set some very aggressive goals for utilities companies in order to change, um, to, to help basically change consumer behavior, um, to reduce carbon emissions, to, you know, increase our sustainable behaviors. Um, and those those aggressive goals, utilities companies are expected to meet those goals so that we can, again, help improve the environment. And eSource partners with and serves utilities companies to really understand how to help them reach those goals. And a lot of that involves helping with messaging that utilities companies are producing. So one of the big efforts right now from utilities companies is trying to get more consumers open to the concept of electric vehicles or purchasing electric vehicles. But one of the challenges is that it's been difficult to really understand how to connect deeply with people at different points in their potential buying process. So one of the reasons I'm so excited about the project that we did with eSource, and actually we're getting ready to launch some more research with them, is that we worked with them to really understand for people who are at different points in the buying process, people who say they're planning to purchase an EV within the next year, uh, people who say they're going to purchase within the next two to three, uh, four or more, six or more, what are different messages from advertising content that are connecting with these different groups of people in meaningful ways? Because that by identifying that, it helps understand what potential barriers are to getting people to be open to adopting EVs or be more open to purchase, open to purchasing sooner. So through the project, we actually found that there are different messages that connect with people who plan to buy in the next year versus in two to three versus a longer span. And by understanding that, it's actually going to help utilities companies develop better content to speak to people in a way that's meaningful and that's more likely to have them be open to considering an electric vehicle. So what kind of messaging got them to consider it sooner? So it was really interesting because one of the things that they found is people who are buying in the next year have actually done a lot of research. And the types of things that really connect with them and that are likely to make them really move are uh, messaging around the types of variation that they have access to. Um, things like 
you know, other people, so messaging related to other people like me are driving electric vehicles. Uh, look at all the options that you have. Smart, you know, you can have smart features in electric vehicles. These individuals have done a lot of the work already, and they're more interested in understanding what's it really going to be like? What are my options? They want to be able to envision themselves in an electric vehicle. What's interesting is that people who are a little bit further out, those are the people actually who were really responding to messaging around things like um, the distance that you can drive, how long a charge will last, uh, the quickness of charging, the ease of getting a local, um, uh, of having a charging station installed at home. So these are people who are still in that information uh, acquisition phase, but by understanding that there are certain messages that are really connecting with them, it helps these companies understand, okay, we really need educate these particular people in this particular space so that they aren't afraid about where am I going to find a charging station if I'm trying to drive from X to Y, or if I purchase an EV, will it really get me where I need, if that makes sense. So one of the traditional ways, you know, people uh, are segmenting is demographics. I'm just curious, how much of a correlation is there to traditional demographics and neuroscience, or is there a better correlation to some other factors that you find uh, really, uh, you know, connects the two better? Yeah, you know, it really depends on the, the thing that is being measured, Darshan. So one of the things we uh, very much, we work with many clients who care about understanding whether there are different responses for different demographic groups. And absolutely, our research is much like any other kind of research where you can target specific people. You can look at different subgroups. Um, in fact, uh, we've seen some really interesting different patterns from working with uh, clients who are measuring meetings. They're doing kind of employee measurements and looking at people who are in person versus remote for certain kinds of activities and certain types of meetings. Um, so ultimately, you know, it's not so much that different demographics have different brains or anything like that. Um, that's absolutely not the case. However, our experiences, the things that we encounter will change what connects with our brains, right? What is going to connect with me as, you know, um, I, the, like the Super Bowl halftime show. That connected with me very, very strongly because of, you know, my when I was born, the kind of music I've listened to, the kind of culture I grew up in compared to younger individuals. You know, I've seen tons of memes where it's all about like, uh, you know, kids from the 80s and 90s explaining to kids today why the Super Bowl halftime show is so great. So, you know, it's, it's really interesting because the, our demographics can contribute to our life experiences and that ultimately contributes to how things connect to us. Now, having said that, we work with plenty of clients. So for us, a statistically meaningful sample is 35 individuals. And that might sound so, uh, really surprising to people who have never explored neuroscience research. But part of the reason for that is we are collecting second by second reactions to experiences and content, as opposed to asking a set of, you know, one, five, 10 questions about the experience. We're capturing hundreds of data points. And so we actually do work with a number of clients who are testing early stage concepts who won't even test with a full 35 you know, a full set of 35 individuals. They'll grab 10 people from their internal team, even though those individuals may not fully represent the demographics they're targeting. By doing that, they're getting brain data over gut reactions that they were using before. So if you're using your gut to make choices about what content to air or where to take a story, 
using a brain-based reaction is going to be much better than relying on something that may be influenced by the other people sitting in the room who you're hoping to please, uh, you know, what you had for breakfast this morning, whether or not you woke up on the right side of the bed. So it's really interesting because demographics can play a role, but at the same time, if you don't have capacity to measure every demographic or target your specific group, there's also value in getting those brain reactions to early stage content or to early stage uh, concepts, subscription boxes. And we work with plenty of clients who are doing that, who are working with smaller audiences. So you're doing measurement with people just reading, let's say, content or messaging and how their brains are reacting versus actually physical experiences or both? Yeah, both. Absolutely both. So we've worked with people who have looked at just simple messaging. So to your point, you know, it's a written statement uh, or a set of written statements where they want to see what's going to connect most strongly with their audience. In other cases, we've looked at storyboards and, you know, we've had people present images, uh, uh, text words, things like that. We've done animatics, fully baked videos, and then we've done live experiences. So one of my favorite uh, kind of beta tests was when our whole team actually went to Disney and measured ourselves. This is pre-pandemic, but went to Disney, measured ourselves, going on the different rides and having the different experiences live at Disney. So, you know, we've done um, website testing. I mean, it's really kind of our, our applications span the gamut because again, all we need is someone to be wearing either a smartwatch or a fitness sensor and to have our app downloaded and be tapped into that measurement. I'm curious, if you're testing the same message and let's say you present it with a the full arsenal of a video with sound, you know, and everything and the visuals versus let's say them just reading it, are you finding equivalent or different reactions uh, from the neuroscience perspective? Yeah. So, you know, it can really, so there are definitely some best practices, right? When it comes to a message that is printed, obviously reading speeds are going to be different. And so ultimately one of the things that, again, we provide is that second by second reaction. However, if you have somebody who is reading on their own, you will not necessarily be able to get that second by second, because unless you have them read out loud, you're not going to know exactly where they're at in the message. One of the solutions for that is a lot of the companies that we work with will do a voiceover for the message because they really care about understanding how the individual is reacting to certain parts of the message. If they opt not to do a voiceover, then typically they're looking at different messages. So A, B, C message, where they're looking at overall immersion scores as opposed to really getting that second by second because everyone has different cognitive processing speeds and different reading speeds. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, you often are trying to get the emotional impact of a product experience. And you, I think, recently did a project with a perfume brand. What were some of the insights you discovered there? Yeah, you know, it's been really exciting, especially with, um, you know, things starting to improve with COVID. We have started doing a lot more product testing as consumers are getting more comfortable receiving packages, getting things shipped in home. So we've done a lot of, you know, the iHubs, the in-home user testing style um, experiences. And one of the ones that we did recently that was exciting was for, as you mentioned, a new perfume brand. And this particular brand is a perfume brand that it has been around. It's a... Um, it's a more elite brand and they're getting ready to launch a new line of fragrances. And they wanted to understand how these fragrances kind of have, what kind of mental impact these fragrances have. And so for this test, what we did is actually the brand sent the consumers 
samples of the three different fragrances and they were masked with a label of A, B, and C. And then in order to make it something that was easy to aggregate, what they did is they actually put together an instructional video that when the consumers basically started the activity, they had the fragrances around them, they were instructed first to smell, for example, B and then A and then C. So it was really kind of a guided product experience. And the way our platform works is that you can set up different videos. And so we will auto randomize the videos for you because of course order effects matter. And so it was really neat because with the ability to tap into the smartwatches that the people already had, send the product in home, it only took actually a couple weeks to get data on the impact of these different fragrance lines. And now the brand has basically found that this new fragrance line causes an increase of immersion of up to 53%. And what that means is when people are immersed, they are having a positive mental experience. Their brain, again, is getting value and coding things as, this is exciting, I wanna continue to be in this space. And so for them, that's a really exciting metric to be able to share with different uh, you know, outlets for selling their perfume. And also they're featuring this on their website as this kind of benefit of this new aroma line. So it's been really exciting to work with them and they're actually getting ready to also start measuring some of their marketing content as they get ready to launch this new line. Are you finding that there are certain senses, let's say smell, sight, taste, or that have more of an impact on emotional reactions? Yeah, you know, we've had a lot of conversation about this internally because, you know, the the fragrances, smell, olfaction has a lot of it's an interconnected experience, right? So I actually used to teach, and one of my favorite, um, so I, I would teach intro psychology, and one of my favorite chapters was sensory and perception because our senses and the way that we perceive the world, and again, this is where that not really able, really being able to fully report on my experience, our perceptions are constructed by our brains. Our brains create, this is why the, the blue and, uh, what was it, the blue and gold dress or the white and, you know, why people see literally different things because our brain constructs our perceptions. And that's very much true for olfaction. Um, it's really interesting how some of the different senses can also override each other. One of the things that we've kind of discussed internally is whether or not tactile sensation would really show that much difference when it comes to immersion. So we've done studies that have involved tact, um, a tactile sensation in conjunction with other sensory inputs, but it's interesting because we're actually getting ready to do a pilot where we're looking at this, whether or not feeling different fabrics is going to really have this kind of significant difference. Um, so the answer for us is, you know, we don't claim to be able to do everything. We will try it and we will definitely work with you to model against it and be open and honest. We've seen that we've had the ability to distinguish between experiences in a lot of different areas, but we come from an academic lab and we care about making sure that we have valuable results, right? And so, you know, the kind of long answer to your question is, um, it depends. Right, <laughs> right, we're right. still figuring it out, TBD. Yeah, I think it's a lot about the brain. We're still learning for sure. But, uh, but you made me think of something interesting, and that is that, you know, I often find that smell and music are like a time machine. So yeah. sometimes, I mean, how do you, or I don't know if you can distinguish between the emotion someone's having to the current smell versus and actually a memory of the smell from a, a, an event that they've had in the past. Uh, is there a way to distinguish that or, or no? 
You know, it's interesting, Darshan, there's not really a good way to distinguish that for each individual, but that's where there's power in numbers, right? So ultimately, just like with any other research, the goal of having a sample that you're looking at that is at least 35 individuals is that it's highly unlikely that all of those individuals are going to have the same positive memory, for example. So one person might, you know, smelling a particular smell may trigger a memory of my grandmother, but it's unlikely that all 30 of of the other 34 individuals also had that positive memory. So while we can't tease it out for those individuals, we could certainly ask after the fact. So, you know, we, again, that's where the additional... Um, more traditional methodologies like quantitative and caution, you know, uh, qualitative, those approaches can be beneficial to adding additional context to the results. And, you know, we might find by asking people, yeah, this reminds me of my grandmother, or this reminds me of my, you know, mother when I was younger, or cookies, or I know a lot of sensory research actually kind of focuses when you get to the core of building kind of perfumes and and fragrances, a lot of the researchers out there will actually look at what kinds of positive memories different uh, scent elements evoke. So the sensory system is is really, really interesting. And same with music, right? You can really have a lot of power by embedding music in different kinds of experiences. And in fact, we recently um, worked on a, or partnered on a study where we found that audio is a hugely immersive platform for delivering advertising for delivering especially if you start to look at people who like local radio hosts right we have a special relationship with them and so when they are advertising to us in fact we worked with odyssey on a really interesting study around this where again they found that local radio hosts man they really are able to immerse individuals because you trust them right you have this relationship already it's almost like a friend recommending a product to you Interesting. You've done some work with AR and immersive advertising, and what have you discovered, and what do you see uh, as the future with AR coming into more of our lives? Yeah, you know, um, augmented reality is huge, and I think it's going to continue to grow. Of course, we continue to also see things around the VR or, you know, meta space as well, but I think that that's probably quite a ways out because it's a different kind of experience, right? Augmented reality is about again, meeting you where you're at, but supplementing that space. And actually, one of our um, research partners, um, Alter Agents, actually, it's a great company. They worked with a uh, with Snapchat to actually take a look at this impact. And what they found is that when it comes to augmented reality, it is huge for immersing individuals in experiences. It's, it, it surpasses things like traditional, uh, you know, streaming, advertising, things that we might encounter on other kinds of social media. So it is something where you, it really transports you. And that is something that ultimately we're looking at. Again, the brain gets value from feeling like it's really fully immersed in a scenario. And that's what AR does for us. It allows us to really put ourselves in that place be transported and actually feel like we're having that experience. So I think that it's going to continue to grow and see success. And I think that, you know, as, as technology improves the way we can create AR, I think that we're in for a treat because I think it's just going to make things so much more fun. Imagine concerts and being able to kind of, you know, it's, it's like you get to supplement the scenario. So when you're saying it's huge, are you seeing a, a bigger uh, reaction response to the yeah. AR experiences versus, let's say, a real? 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So the, um, the particular study looked at AR compared to other kinds of experiences. And particularly, it was focused on looking at advertising in an AR experience versus other platforms. And so at least in that particular space, yes, we saw that individuals were far more immersed when they were engaging in basically AR experiences. And actually, I do believe that they also looked at, so it wasn't only advertising, I take that back. So they looked at advertising. I think they also looked at other kinds of interactions on social media. For example, scrolling through a feed, liking things, uh, you know, maybe playing with filters through, um, you know, uh, Instagram, for example. And yes, what we found actually is that when you're having these AR experiences, and Instagram kind of takes that AR approach where you can add those filters, but Snap is doing it really differently because it's all about adding in other elements and bringing you basically bringing what's on your phone out into the world. So, you know, it was, it's, again, it's really interesting because it does, it transports people. And subsequently we saw that immersion was much higher. The brain was much more focused, was much more emotionally engaged in the experiences where AR was present as opposed to the experiences where AR was not. It sounds like if you can build in an element of transportation, transporting someone, that seems to be having a greater uh, response. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes, absolutely. And that's, you know, at the core of it, really, again, I talk about the brain getting value and immersion measuring that. But when you transport someone through a story, through an experience, ultimately, that is immersion. When we say that we we chose the word immersion for a reason, when you say you're immersed in something, that probably means something, right? Do you remember the last time that you were immersed in something, Darshan? I actually did some uh, uh, VR and AR stuff recently, so it was quite immersive, yeah. Right, exactly. And that's it. If I say, hey, you know, I was watching this movie last night and I was fully immersed in it, that, that means something. It means that I'm on the edge of my seat. It means that my brain is living that experience. And at the end of the day, that comes down to narrative transportation. And there's a ton of research out there that shows that when you can narrative, like, you know, when you can transport someone through narrative, through a story, that ultimately is great storytelling. Why is that great storytelling? Because the brain is all in. It's really living the experience as though the human is there in that moment, in the experience, right? And so if through storytelling in an advertisement, if through storytelling in a, uh, a movie trailer, in a podcast, in uh, when you enter, I actually was recently in Denver um, and we went to this event called Meow Wolf and it's all about this immersive experience and it's like you're in this space era and I know they've got one out in Vegas and it's really, the whole purpose is to be immersive and to try to transport you to a different place. By transporting people, you literally take their brains on a journey and that matters, right? That sure. is, we all want more of that. I think we all talk about those things really positively and so if companies and brands want to connect with humans, that should be their focus is to transport them, to connect with them in a way that is going to take them on a journey that's meaningful, right? Because that ultimately, yeah, that will last. I think we can all identify with that. I mean, how many times we've all experienced where we've gotten totally immersed in a movie and it's uh, basically given us a tremendous escape from the world around us. And I think that's what you're talking about. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's funny because I always think of the first time I went to, um, so I grew up in the Midwest and when, you know, we didn't really have Disney around us, right? It was, you had six flags, uh, you had maybe if you wanted to trek over, um, to the, I can't knock it over the name of it, the place that it was Cedar Rapids in Ohio, you know, but when I went to Disney for the first time, I was, I mean, I was 18 years old and I was still mind blown because Disney cares about transporting you, right? When they, like they put an experience, when you're standing in line, you're having an experience and their goal is to really immerse you, make you part of that experience. And so, yeah, that's what it's all about. Again, that's what our brains want. We want to feel like we're there and like we're, we're fully immersed for, you know, again, lack of it, not to overuse the word, but it's, it, again, it's, it, it's significant to us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, what area of neuroscience do you want to do a deeper dive in and why? Oh, that's really interesting. So, um, you know, I love what I'm doing and I always, I, every time I work with clients, people, they always say like, you're so enthusiastic about this. And it's because it's part of my fabric. You know, I worked on the core research at the, 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 the research at the core of our, our, the research at the foundation of our platform. I worked on that in grad school, but I have a, a passion, um, so so I'm very happy and excited about continuing where I'm at, but I also have a, a passion about understanding the brain by observing uniqueness in the brain. And so when I was an undergrad, I was fascinated by amnesia. Um, I My dissertation in graduate school was focused on psychopaths. Um, so I, I have a, a huge interest in understanding when the brain is not operating quote unquote normally, because what's normal anymore, right? But when the brain operates not in the way that we would expect it to, I always have fasc uh, fascination with that. So on uh, as a side job, I'm always kind of doing, uh, digging into research and new learnings in those spaces, I would say. Oh, interesting. Hmm, interesting. So I'm curious, in the world of neuroscience and neuro insights, who would you love to have lunch with and why? That's also a, a, a difficult one. Um, so I would say that, you know, Antonio Damasio has done incredible research in the space of emotions. And I've always been fascinated about understanding emotions more. And, um, you know, as, as I kind of alluded to earlier on the call, emotions are difficult. We really don't fully understand them. And it seems now that they're very much um, kind of a situational thing that we assign after the fact. And the way that, you know, emotions register in our brain, positive and negative, they, they don't look all that different. It's really after the fact that we assign, we look at the context and understand them. And so, you know, any of the neuroscientists who are studying emotion are, are fascinating, but I'd have to say V.S. Ramachandran is probably the person that I would, I, would, I would choose above all else because he wrote an incredible book called Phantoms in the Brain, and he did some incredible research on basically phantom limb syndrome. And it involved basically, so phantom limb syndrome is this horrible thing where people who've lost a limb, they feel the limb still. And oftentimes it feels as though the limb is in a very uncomfortable position. So if, for example, I'd had my hand amputated, I might feel as though my hand is clenched really hard and I just can't get relief. He pioneered research where basically he would sit people in this box and put up a mirror and he would, uh, the mirror made it look to them as though they had their, their hand was back intact. And what he would have them do is a hand that was still intact, he would have them open and close it. And it basically told the brain, 
that the hand that felt so uncomfortable was opening and closing and people were able to get relief from that research. And that to me, when I read that book, I was mind blown. And I've been a a fan of him ever since he's doing some really interesting new research now. And um, yeah, so I, I would have to choose him because I feel like, you know, to be able to use your neuroscience to, to relieve so many people in such a creative way. I mean, wow. Oh yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, I've loved this conversation, Laura. I think you and I could go on for another uh, hour or two, but uh, you know, I, I know you're a busy uh, person and I, I want to thank you very much uh, for your time. And I really find this whole area of neuroscience very interesting and I'm looking forward to seeing what uh, you know comes uh, down the line with new technology and, and new insights that you're going to be revealing. So thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Darshan. It's been such a pleasure. You know, I, um, I, being able to chat about something I'm so passionate about is always exciting for me. And it's always like, I, I have a lovely time speaking with you. So thank you so much <laughs> for having me on and, you know, choosing to spend some time with me. I appreciate it. Thanks. Have a great day. Getting to AHA was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iResearch.com and make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening.